Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A word of warning, this podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. And welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I am joined by the wonderful Beck Thompson from Queensland. Beck is the author of the book Chasing Normal, which is about thriving after childhood, thriving after childhood trauma. So welcome, Beck. I'm so happy to have you on. Thanks, Manny. Thanks for having me here. It's really wonderful to be here. I'm so happy that we're recording this chat because um People who have been on the podcast will know I usually do a half-hour chat with it, with people before they come on so that we can meet um, and officially talk. And um, I think it was last week, Beck and I went well over the half-hour <laughs> as we, we became very fast friends. And I think it, it just goes to show how wonderful it is when you meet other fellow survivors and you just click. It's just the most wonderful feeling. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? You're living in Queensland. Yes, I live on the Gold Coast, um, which I guess is quite enviable for some people. I don't visit the beach probably quite as much as um, people assume that I would living on the Gold Coast. <laughs> uh, but I, I am a, I, I wrote my memoir, Chasing Normal, and I am also a relief teacher for primary and I have three children. And um, yeah, so that that pretty much keeps me quite busy. Those yeah. all those things. <laughs> yeah, there's not much downtime. <laughs> there's not actually. There's there's always something to do. And obviously, I've just started speaking to schools about my experience with um, my childhood as well. So I speak about how teachers are important in providing those sort of pivotal relationships with students so that, you know, we can at least try and counter the effects of childhood trauma. So that's um, a relatively new field for me as well, which, which I'm really enjoying. So, you know, so many advocates will attest to this. It is so important to have people with lived experience at the centre of these conversations to, to instill and dispel myths and have these courageous conversations. It is so important that it's not just people who are 
you know, academics in this area, for example, who have no clinical experience, but so somebody with lived experience to be having these discussions with people, it is so incredibly impactful. Well, I think it's real, isn't it? Um, You know, you don't get more authentic or real um, than speaking with someone with actual experience because, you know, generally when you're talking about your experiences, your heart and your mind go straight back to those moments and there's just, there's so much truth in it You and you, and it's, there's just complete honesty in it. So, and you don't often get that because a lot of people with lived experience are still dealing with it and it's too raw, it's too hard and it's often quite complex and, you know, they'd rather sort of deal with it in their own way and move on. So you don't often get um, the insight from what is it actually like to go through something like this and what are the actual, what's the actual impact it has um, on your life. There's not a lot of people that um, for whatever reason that do that. So, you know, I think that's why a lot of organisations now are calling on people with lived experience because, you know, that is the real window. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a, um, you know, a story. It's not something you read in, as you said, academic papers. Uh, it's real people with real experiences and they've so much to offer that sometimes doesn't get addressed or fully understood in a university learning clinical studies and all those sort of things you know it's real life real people and you can't you know you can't put a value on that I think absolutely and I think you know in the last few years I've seen this shift from people believing that people with lived experience are too fragile or you know you can't work in sex crimes if you've been a victim of sexual abuse because you you won't be able to handle it because you know you're too close to it there are there are people who genuinely have that belief but i think that there is a shift happening right now where people are seeing people as experts and with my background you know my job that i do as my day job i man- i specialize in business process improvement so i go into different business areas and i assess the current state of services that they're delivering And I'm not going to ask the manager, like, how does your team process their work? Like, I'm not going to go to the manager at the front of McDonald's, for example, um, Hmm. who's never worked on the grill to explain to me the process of how somebody makes a Big Mac. I'm going to go to the person (laughs) who makes the Big Mac every day and ask him how he makes a bloody Big Mac, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It's like these are the people who are experiencing the processes, people who have gone through the court systems, people who have gone through foster systems, There is no better expert, in my opinion, than people who have lived through that, not the people looking from the outside, not the people helping Mm. them through the process, the people going through it themselves. That's who I would go to in my job, and I think that's why it's so important. I mean, the human experience, uh, as I've learned over the years, is that, you know, every time we experience something, trauma or otherwise, we we all create our own meaning from that. So, and then however we create that meaning uh, is how we live from it. And so because everyone's so unique and how they, they, you know, how it impacts them, everyone's experience of that is going to be different and how they, you know, see it, how they process it, how they heal. That's why it's, you know, really insightful to talk to people with lived experience because no two experiences um, and and their impact are the same. I mean, yeah. 
trauma is such a perfect example because you can have people that have lived the same experience and just dealt with it in completely different ways. And that's where the insight's really valuable because they can look at you and go, well, what did you do that helped that might help the next person who's never even thought that that's that was you know an idea or process they could use and I think that's something that we spoke about um the last time that we caught up as well which I think is really interesting for example children who are exhibiting behaviors that are potentially going through trauma currently at that time you know you might not you might not see the same behavior and you're not going to see the same behavior you know the kid being incredibly quiet in the corner might be going through a very similar thing to the kid being hyperactive and destructive their behaviour sets may be indicators that something is going wrong, for example. Their responses and their behaviours are not going to be consistent. Yeah, I love I love that because when I speak to schools and I talk about what the trauma looked like in the classroom, my, what my trauma looked like, you know, the feedback generally is, oh, I never thought it was, I never thought to think about the children who are so quiet because I think Sometimes we can generalise the idea that a quiet student is a learning student, is a happy student and a compliant student. And we tend to kind of make more of a um, focus on the kids who who find it hard to sit still, who can be distracting and vocal and loud. And uh, so whenever I speak to schools, there's always a bit of a surprise because they expect me to say that I might have been aggressive or loud, but actually I was quite the opposite. I was very numb, was very um, disconnected, um, very shy, very anxious. So, you know, in a lot of ways I went under the radar. And But it's good for educators to learn that so that they don't just allow or, or just... Um, not allow the fact that some kids, you know, we don't all present the same way. We don't all show problematic behaviours. Absolutely. So So there's an indicator there maybe that someone can ask a couple of questions and dig a little bit deeper because that's 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 the first standpoint. That's where they can start. Looking for patterns and, um, you know, yeah, like you said, scratching a little below the surface to see if there is any I mean it look and, and at the end of the day you're not going to pick up every student that's why it's more important to focus on the relationships with children so that you know that we can at least have a chance to you know build a, a strong relationship so that children don't feel as alone that they feel more connected to someone especially if there's neglect and abandonment um, at home where they don't get those enriched engagement with their own caregivers. So in that sense, that's why we sort of focus more on on relationships than trying to try and, you know, we're not asking teachers to try and see through this miraculous lens for, you know, every child experience trauma. But we are asking you to um, make sure that we foster a sense of safetyness and and trust so that at least children have someone that they feel they can be safe with. Absolutely. And I think that there's that perception out there as well that, you know, child abuse or neglect or things like that are really rare. And I think that's another thing and a reason that it's so important to have these discussions because it's a lot more common than people think. Rightfully more common. It's actually really scary. I can't, I can't, I think the last time I haven't looked at the stats in a while, but um, one in six, I think, um, girls. And I think they say the the large majority of those um, 
those abuse statistics are from family members. And, you know, unfortunately, abuse thrives in secrecy. So you're not going to know anyway. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's so much harder with a child, you know, child under grooming, child under threat, child under neglect. Um, Mm. They don't have the complex nuanced information to understand in a lot of circumstances to raise the flag, to ask for help. So I think, yeah, this is such a powerful conversation because it is something that is not talked about enough and we need to raise it and say it is happening around you and it's not um, an anomaly every now and then. Like you probably do know somebody who has been through this as a child. Well, it's really interesting because I I often think about you know, and if people say to me, why didn't I say anything? And and mine was sort of started in primary school. I was actually in grade two. But there's, you know, it's hard to say to a child who's six, seven years old, you know, why didn't you say something? Um, not that they would. But the whole point is, is that, you know, even if you are being abused by a family member, there's still your world. There's still your sense of safety within that Um, and I know that sounds funny but you know I didn't want to lose that because then you go to another unknown you go to you know go into foster care and and you don't know them at all so then feel like you're starting starting again so it's it's almost kind of like that better the devil you know kind of experience where you just go well I know it's not it's not ideal it's um you know it doesn't make you feel good but where else in the world would I go? Yeah, and it's an awful lot to put on a child to expect much more than, you know, their compliance in that sense, you know, mm. depending on their age as well. It's just too much to expect, I think, that that they would be disclosing at rates above what they are now. I think it just boils down to the belief as well. Like I think children know whether they're going to believe, be believed or not. And, I mean, certainly as I got Uh, more towards grade six and the perpetrator changed from one grandfather to the other I knew that my my mother wouldn't believe me so you you again you're you're making all these decisions in your head well I've got to put up with it because if I don't if I say something then I'm going to lose my mother Uh, I'm going to be you know potentially displaced Um, so it's it's really it's such a difficult position to be in and and I will say that come year nine when when my abuse came out and the police sort of got involved I was offered foster care and again I uh I turned that down because I I knew that once it came out in the open and my mum wouldn't believe me which she didn't I knew that my grandfather would never set foot in the house again so it became, it became, you know, safe for the first time. It actually became a safe place for me and it was familiar. I still had siblings. I had friends around me and I, I didn't want to give that up to go and stay in a foster environment where I didn't know anyone and a new house, new environment, new people. I just, I didn't want that. I didn't want that option for me. It just didn't suit me. I wanted the familiarity that I already had. And I also wanted my my room was a safe place for me and I wanted to keep that. It was one of the few things that I could control. Do you mind telling us a, a little bit about what your story is? I know that you've touched on some parts of it already. I, I mean, I, I had a fairly typical childhood up until grade two. I was six and nearly six and a half years old and um, you know, fairly typical 
had both parents and a couple of other siblings. You know, I, I it was, you know, Christmases, birthdays, riding down the street on bikes and billy carts and all those sorts of things. And, um, you know, I got to catch up with friends. I, I got I got to be a little girl, um, but somewhere along um, probably the first term, I think, in grade two, my parents separated and it was decided that my mum couldn't cope being a single mum on her own with four children. So we moved in to my, it's so weird, I, every time I say it, I just say it's such a weird decision. But we ended up moving in with my paternal grandfather, my father's father, and he already had nine other children living in this house and five other women. So um, I, you know, life became extremely different after that. I pretty much lost my childhood overnight. There was no... um, there was no toys, there was no books, there was, um, we couldn't watch TV. My life pretty much revolved around doing chores and going, um, going to church. Um, but unfortunately, it also involved um, my grandfather sexually abusing me. So, um, and there was a lot of physical beatings as well. So things like, you know, if we didn't... <laughs> we didn't do our jobs properly uh, we were beaten or isolated or we'd go without a meal so that sort of happened for three years and then my mum left and came back to get us I was actually removed from my school during the day by two policemen just so my mum could get her kids out of the house um and away from my grandfather so then we moved up to a couple of hours away to my mum's parents' house Uh, and, you know, it was hoped that I would get some normality and be a little girl again. Um, Of course, I was nine and a half at this stage. So, um, you know, but I I got to do normal things, watch TV, eat cereal, listen to music. Um, And so just trying to regain some normality um, and try and find some safety in that my about Within six months of moving to my maternal grandparents' house, my um, my grandfather, my mum's dad, began abusing me as well. So that kind of, you know, it, it almost felt like here we go again, you know. Um, it was just I got to have my childhood, but again it was the the innocence of, of what it was was stripped from me again. Uh, but this time I knew that it would be different because I could see the dynamics with my mum and her parents. She really idolised her parents so they could never do anything wrong. My grandfather was a police, a retired policeman as well. So, you know, in my mum's eyes, policemen don't do those sorts of things. So he had that perfection idol sort of status. Um, you know, and so that sort of continued uh, right to the end of year eight and we sort of moved around a few times but not too far away, probably about half an hour away. And at the end of year eight, my mum announced that she was buying a house right back in the town where her parents lived. And I, you know, I was 13 going on 14. I'd been sexually abused since I was six and a half years old 
and I knew I couldn't take it anymore. I just, uh, and the anxiety, and I just felt this incredible pain in my chest. I couldn't breathe. I just knew that it had to stop. And of course, the only way to do that was I actually told a friend for the first time. I aired it. I said, you know, my grandfather's molesting me. And about a month after we moved into our new home, uh, there's a knock at the door and the police, there's a policewoman standing there. So, uh, and, you know, it sort of came out there. She sat down point blank with my with my mum sitting there and said, is, is your grandfather abusing you? And I, and I knew my life was going to change in that instant. Um, it would never be the same. Uh, and I said, yes, yes, he is. And, of course, I brought up my other grandfather while we are in it. <laughs> and that was it. You know, my mum just completely denied it, refused to acknowledge it. Um, I was ostracised from the entire family. My mum's family didn't want to know me. Um, I was just a liar. And and it was pretty much never spoken of again. Um, my mum would tell me things that my my grandfather was so uh, disgusted in me for lying and breaking up the family. So I was the real villain. And while he got all the sympathy, he, you know, um, the wretched little liar that I was that destroying the family name and all that sort of rubbish. Uh, and, yeah. and, yeah, so, you know, but for me, um, like I said, my mum used to sort of say, you know, my he's never going to step foot in this house again. And I think I was meant to feel bad about that, but I actually felt quite victorious because I thought, well, now I actually have a safe place that you will never come into again. So I actually feel okay about that. Yeah, I've achieved at least one objective. <laughs> well, yeah, but, I mean, you know, the road the road from that, you know, it hasn't been an easy one. I, um, certainly in the years following it was incredibly difficult because I knew I no longer had any parental support and I just had to lay low and figure out my life and you know I've obviously gone through a lot of things since then I'm really sorry that you that you've not only gone through those two long-standing abuse situations with members of your family that are supposed to care for you but then also being victim blamed by your family and ostracized by your family because that is you know almost arguably I mean for me my experience the I was ostracized by my community in many ways and that really affected my mental health and whether mm. I truly believed what had happened and it, it it that did a lot of damage to me mentally and I think people don't understand the damage that that those kind of reactions have and it's just not acceptable to blame you or to not mm. even to to outwardly blame I mean you know as a I'm not a mother but I think as a human if a child said something like that to me I couldn't imagine me not at least investigating it and being like, yeah. what happened? Give me, give me examples. Can you tell me where's like, where's, where was that care for you? That's so. Well, <laughs> that's what I always find so extraordinary is that, you know, even if, even if there was, you know, 
just, you know, because you well, look, it's human nature to believe the best in your parents. So I can certainly understand from my mum's point of view that, you know, she had so much faith in her father, but she couldn't see him as, as someone with any flaws that would ever do that. And it, it's a massive betrayal to do that. That let's let's, you know, it's such a betrayal. And look, I know how I'd feel if I was in the same position. But like you said, it's the fact that it was just, it was completely written off. Like there was no investigation. I didn't have one single family member come to me and go, look, this is just so extraordinary, but tell me, when did it happen? How often did it happen? How did he get you um, in private to do this? You know, because he used these little tricks that he had, of course, to isolate me. And um, and that's what I find so extraordinary. You know. Uh, and, and the other thing too is that, you know, I was 13 when the abuse came out, well old enough, I think, to know the damage I'm doing. If, if let's say it was a lie, why would I choose, you know, being a teenager is difficult enough without going, you know what, what's going to make my life even more exciting? How about I say something completely false to completely ostracise any support? (laughs) um, You know, it's just, it's so ridiculous. But I think that's the power of what pedophiles do. They have this power and control. You know, they set up this narrative and this culture in the family and it, it just makes it so unbelievable. You know, the, his, he had a name, he had a reputation and, you know, he made it so that it was so absurd that he would do such a thing. Uh, but there's, you know, where's the absurdity of where would a child get this idea? Where does a child come up with this um, absurd idea? And I certainly didn't have any, you know, I was a fairly, I'm very, you know, there was no pattern to me lying in any other way, shape or form. Yeah. And it just seems extraordinary that that's the first thing they go to because they don't want to look beyond the facade that hang on a minute, we don't actually know what, you know, despite them, you know, being in your family, we just, you don't actually know. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The lengths people will go to. Yeah, Absolutely. And that you said that there was police intervention. So the police have come and they're asking these questions and your mum's just outright denied it. Did they have any involvement past that point? Did they do any investigation or due diligence in that aspect? Uh, yeah, so I I had to go into the police station and, and write a report for each grandfather. I've still got it. On, I've got my typewriter copies because this was in 1991. <laughs> And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was um, called in to make a, um, I, I don't know exactly, but I know he they recorded his responses. And I was actually invited to listen to his responses. I'm not sure why, and I don't even know why I decided to listen to it, but I certainly listened to some of it. Yeah. And it sort of, yeah, at the time it just made my blood boil because he just denied it the whole time. Um I mean, I could, and and one of the questions I do get asked quite a lot is why didn't you press charges? Because I didn't. Uh, And I always say, well, I think I'd gone through enough. You know, had I, I, my mum already didn't believe me. That was hard enough to know. I just didn't even have my mum on my side, let alone my entire family no longer wanting to speak to me. it was just I'd achieved what I wanted, which was the abuse to stop. That's all I wanted. And I, you know, I knew that there was a definite possibility it wasn't going to end well. I knew it would break my relationships. I mean, my nana, who I was so fond of, who I loved, you know, growing up, I just, I, I loved my nana. She never spoke to me again. Um, there was no birthday calls. There was no presents. There was, there was nothing. It was like I was just dead. I was written off. So I felt like I'd had enough. You know that yeah. I'd had enough to deal with. I didn't need more court cases, more aggro. And they lived in the same town, so it was hard to avoid. I had my cousins up the road. Um, we caught the same school bus together. You know. It, I wanted just to be able to move on at the time and I just I just knew it would be dragged out. What I don't understand, though, is how a child is the one making a decision whether to press charges in a case of child sexual abuse. So <laughs> where's the, like I would just assume 
that there's been an allegation made, there seems to be substantial, like this can be substantiated. There seems to be things that we can investigate and look into. You know, maybe it's a sign of the times. I hope that process has now changed, but that just baffles me that they wouldn't investigate that further. I They told me that I had certainly had enough to press charges, mm. uh, but it was my choice. And I think maybe because I was 13, maybe, I don't know, if I guess I had been younger, um, I'm not really sure. And I think, like you say, I think times have probably changed a bit as well um, because I think I was speaking to someone recently in, um, I think it was my editor of my memoir, uh, when she was looking at the part where I went into the police station, she said, how come, why haven't you written that your mum's gone to the station with you? And I said, well, she didn't come. And she said, that's ridiculous. How how did you go into the police station without an adult? And I said, well, I don't, I don't think it was offered and my mum would have refused anyway. So she said, well, that's extraordinary. I'm pretty sure that wouldn't happen these days. I don't actually know. But, yeah, yeah, like you said, perhaps things have changed and the processes are different. But, I mean, I had avenues. Like I said, they... Uh, I could have pressed charges. I could have gone into foster. I was offered counselling at the time as well, which I, which I rejected um, because in my 13-year-old mind, uh, as I said before, I felt enormous. Oh, the burden just felt so great as it was. Yeah. And I didn't think I needed help. I just thought, you know what, it's done. You know, they've discarded me. The abuse has stopped. What more do I need? Why do I need to go and sit and talk to someone? I mean, obviously years later um, when my life just kind of fell apart and I couldn't do anything, you know, mentally I just fell apart, I, I took counselling. But at the time I just I didn't think I needed it and I just wanted to move on as best yeah. I could. Mm. It just it kills me because it shouldn't have been your burden to carry alone. But mm. it's sad that you had to to carry that burden alone and to make those decisions alone. But what I do remember from my case as well is I was 14 and I was offered counselling and I was offered all of these things and I felt the same way at the beginning. I was like, I'm fine, it's over. He's going to get, you know, I felt really tough and I was trying to be really cool and tough about it and, you know, I lied Mm. in a lot of circumstances to different people about different aspects of it. I lied, you know, when um, they asked me the first time the police when they arrived on that night, I said he might have, you know, there was a lot of things that that come out of your mouth because you're young and you're, you're literally in shock and you're going through trauma. Mm. And those are the things that we need to normalize. You don't, you know, especially with the counseling on your behalf, I think as well, it's just recognizing in that moment that you've got so much going on and there was a stigma about like accessing social services like that. Mm. So it's like, I don't want to be, known as that kid at school that has to go to therapy? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, and it's a little bit sketchy to me, but I I believe my school was notified. But I, I, you know, I decided to really, um, gosh, year nine was just forever etched in my brain because I decided that year that I would go to a different school. So just to make matters in my life more interesting, it was a new school. I knew absolutely no one there. And, um, Apparently they were notified. I don't ever recall them pulling me out of class and saying, listen, we know what's going on. Do you need some help? 
But, you know, to be fair, I probably would have said, you know, like you said, I don't want to be that kid, you know, just let me get on with it. Um, I think, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I don't know, how do you persuade a teenager (laughs) to do anything? (laughs) You know, I, I know with my own kids, you know, trying to get them, I've offered you know, even funnily enough, I've always said to my kids, if you need someone to talk to and you don't want to talk to me about it, there's there's kids helpline and they just look at me like, what? Uh, but I'm so, I, so even then, you know, giving them avenues, if they're too mad to talk to me or too embarrassed to talk to me about something, I give them that option. But, you know, they look at me like I'm fallen from the sky or something, you know. So it's not easy trying to persuade a teenager. But I think even more so when there's been a sexual assault, there's so much shame there because you you just, honestly, you just, at the time I just wanted to get on with it. I would have just gone, no, 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 not doing it, not doing it, just because you just want to get on. You want to move on from it. And you don't realise you're 13 years old, you're 14 years old, you 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 don't realise the impact it has. You know, we certainly didn't talk about mental illness back in 1991 like we do now. We know a lot more now with the repercussions of trauma and sexual assault. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't the topic that it is now. So, you know, you, you just, like I say, you just get on with it. You just get on with it and just hope that it stays out of the way so you can try and have some sort of normality. There was one thing that I wanted to um, ask as well. So before you were speaking about your paternal grandfather um, and that living situation, you said there were another five women and nine children there. Mm. What was the the dynamics of that living situation? (laughs) Like that's quite odd. It is, yes. My grandfather was... Yeah, I mean, if if we talk about mental illness, I'm pretty sure he was not a mentally well man. Um, He, I don't know, what do I say about that man? He just had a lot of children, (laughs) a lot of children. My father is his um, eldest child out of all of them. And um, it was, I guess it was like a cult um, because it was heavily uh, religious-based and it was just utter control. I, I just can't even, I, I didn't go outside those walls unless I went to school. And so my life in from six till nine was in that house uh, with, like I said, like nine other children uh, that are technically my aunties and uncles and just five other women that were just caught up with this man's idea of, Whoever he thought he was, I think he was—he thought he was some kind of messiah. That's why I, so I call him the messiah in my book because yeah. I think that's yeah. what he thought he was. So it was pretty messed up. Um, so he was uh, in a relationship yeah. with all of these women at the same time in the same house like it's a yeah like we all lived in the same house uh Mm. you know it was a rank system so um I believe he was legally married to one of them um but he had children to a few others and then there was just the labor women the ones that just did the work you know the the dirty laborious work that no one wanted to do so uh it was a yeah I, I gotta say of all the experiences I've had that 
that was one of them and that's had the most impact as far as, you know, when we talk about um, rewiring brains and, I mean, that's, I was six years old, so it's a you know, critical age of development anyway. But there's a lot of things that that really, you know, I guess if you can say scarred me from that experience because it was so unbelievably controlled. You know, you could not, I wasn't even allowed to talk to my mum anyway. She lived in the same house. I wasn't allowed to talk to her. She wouldn't, you know, we didn't celebrate birthdays or Christmases. You know, my mum was a virtual stranger in that home. And, in fact, you know, the hardest, it's um, one of the stories that I do share in my memoir, it's the hardest one to share is because they, they could only beat you so much. And then if they thought that you really weren't learning, learning your lessons as a six-year-old, <laughs> they they would get my mum to beat me. So they would, like as a psychological thing, like, well, if you're not going to listen to us, we'll get your mum. And they'd literally just call her down and give her the strap and just order her to beat me and I still remember one day she had tears just streaming down her face and I'm in the corner screaming at her telling her to stop beating me and she had women behind her saying you keep going you keep going that's one of two experiences in that house that has just never left me because it it just speaks of just the messed up situation that was in that house was awful. And that power and control dynamic of getting, you know, that's not only punishing you, that's punishing your mum and showing Mm. this power and control dynamic and trying to guilt you into compliance, I guess, as well, by seeing your mum upset, you know, like that's such a traumatic experience. I can't imagine what that Mm. must be like. And it it goes to show, you know, for how much work you've done, it's not only one facet, you know, that you've had to overcome in these experiences. It's it's a pattern of behavior from so many different areas of your life that Mm. you really had to unlearn and rewire and really challenge your own thinking. And, you know, when you're taught something consistently over and over time, your beliefs become habit. So Mm, you rewire your brain, Mm. you know, that it goes to show how much, how much you've been able to do to now foster this wonderful environment for your children and to be um, actively working on healing and to be talking about this as an educator, like it's just incredible. Yeah, well, I think um, it is a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. It's, <laughs> um, when you when you grow up in an environment where you learn that your primary caregivers are not going to be there, and look, there's, you know, even just aside from my mum's grandfather, um, her not believing about her father, there is that sense that, you know, I'm a mother myself and if anyone tried to tell me to beat my own children, well, I I know what my reaction would be. They'd have to stand over <laughs> my dead body to get to my kids. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the hardest things I think to process um, has been really hard to process is that my mum couldn't even stand up and go, you know what, it's me. You want you want someone, take me. And I think that was one of the most painful things to process over the years is to go, my mum couldn't even be that person. Like not even, you know, it's me or it's, it's I'm going to stand here in front of my children. And so there's there's a lot of work that you have to do as far as 
you know, because we're kind of biologically wired to believe that our parents will be there. And then when they're not there, you you just think there's something wrong with me. I am not worthy enough to be protected, to be looked after, to be saved, to be rescued. There is nothing good about me because everything I think about the world is determined by how my parents treat me. The work involved in kind of going, well, you know when you when you know when you grow up and you realize your parents are just people? Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's kind of like that. You have to go well, they're just people. They're, I know that's my parents, but that's just a person who couldn't stand up for me and just the inner work to go, I I didn't deserve that. You know, I deserve to be protected. I deserve to be looked after. And they didn't do it, but I'm okay because I know I I deserved better. And I, I guess that's why I relied on other people. I relied on teachers. I had mentors in my life. I had other strong relationships where I was able to go, well, that's one person despite being my mother, but she's not going to be run the narrative of who I am in my life. I'm not going to take it from her because I know I don't deserve that. No yeah. one deserves yeah. that. You know, so yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. And I can really understand why some people just never get past that. Because it's, I would say that is one of the hardest things to accept, to really accept that. Yeah. And it's, I think when you talk, you know, even just saying accept there, you know, people have always said, and I hate this, um, you know, forgiveness will set you free. Fuck off. I mean, you know, I don't potential. I don't specifically believe in forgiveness. I believe that it comes through acceptance. And, and but in saying that, some people forgiveness works for them, and that's that's fine. Everybody, you do you. I'm not shitting on that. I'm just saying that I believe personally. Yeah. It's the acceptance, and it's when you go back and you relive, and you've got those potentially PTSD you know, flashbacks happening and you're reliving experiences that were awful, you know, where you felt unloved, where you felt like you weren't worthy and all of these things and you look in on that and getting to a point where it still hurts but you accept that. That's that's the hardest part, I think. Like Those are the really, really tough times when you're going through this and you're really working through what's happened in your life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I just needed a lot of reassurance from other people as well and a lot of counseling I had a lot of therapy a lot of therapy and I'm grateful for that I'm so unbelievably grateful that I took um when I knew that I needed it and and you know the other thing and it's going to sound really funny but I always think you know if I was if I was born to another family my experience wouldn't be this it's just that I grew up And that was one of my key turning points when I started kind of, you know, if you will, the healing journey. I really hate that. But, you know, (laughs) if if we're going to talk about where I started with this, it was realising that I was born into this culture of deceit and um, this, you know, what I didn't agree with. And I always thought, well, if I was born into another family, it wouldn't be like this. There'd be other problems. But, you know, I had girlfriends who grew up in loving families and I just thought, see, my story is different. The only reason my story is different is because I grew up in this culture. 
this culture of abuse and abandonment and neglect. So I've learned that through my modelling, through my repeated experiences in that family. And so I thought, well, if I don't want to be a part of that culture anymore and they've discarded me anyway, they didn't ex- they didn't expect anything from me. They didn't expect me to do much with my life at all. But I thought if I could learn a different way of being, then I, I am, I've got the capability to mould my own, you know, develop my own culture and how I want to be and not purely as a result of what I've been taught to believe about myself because it was bullshit. Yeah. It was one story that I was born into and I could create my own story. I could create my own self-worth. You know, I had that. I, I, and I, was just, I always say it just sounds funny when I say that, but it's one family. I just happened to be born into a, a toxic, shitty family that just there was abuse left, right and centre, but I knew I could learn another way. Yeah. So it wasn't, I kind of thought, well, why not? Why not learn if I want to, if I want to be something different, if I want to know my value, I can learn that. Yeah. And it's almost making it seem like it's a it's a chance encounter rather than something that you deserved or something that you were destined to have. It's just a, a fact of chance that you happened to be in that environment. Yeah. And look, that that um, you know, I can I get how people say that sets you up. Of course, it's your foundational years. It's where, as you said before, it's where you learn your beliefs about the world about relationships and about yourself but I've I've I learned that the beliefs aren't fixed you can change your beliefs you know unfortunately they're stacked up against of counter beliefs that try and tell you the opposite no 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 look your parents abandoned you your your grandfathers abused you they discarded you you're not worth shit so when you're trying to change your beliefs against all of that, it's bloody difficult, but it's possible. Yeah. And the only way I could kind of go to get around that was to go, well, I'm not there now. Now I'm here, present day, in the, you know, the good old moment. What do I choose to do? And yeah. um, I remember, gosh, years ago I was a, gosh, this was many, many years ago, one of the counsellors said to me, you know, um, when I was really trying to get my mum to look at the crap in the family and the counsellor said to me, you know, brains can't change, so your mum would die with the same beliefs. And I just went, well, with all due respect, this is before I knew anything about neuroscience or plasticity or anything, I went, I actually think that's bullshit. I actually think that's bullshit. We have the capability. It's just we have that bastard, you know, bank of experiences and the emotion that comes with it, you know, and that's the killer for a lot of people is they, they can't sort of, it's hard to change when you've got all that, the emotion, the experiences, the memories. It's so hard. But, you know, I, I, I believe it's completely possible, absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, it also comes down to like risk versus reward in many circumstances. You know, what's the risk that she might lose? What's her motivation? You know, all of those different types of things. Getting somebody to a point where they're willing to listen and change is a very difficult thing. But once you get them to that point, it's very different. Well, the risk, 
be engaged in an opportunity to actually do that, to get to that point? Yeah, well, I, 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 um, I get that because I, I used to think, well, the risk actually is, is, well, is that I already know what it's like to live a shit life. I actually know that. I'm really well-versed in that. I'm doing really well in that. But I've never actually tried not living, you know, a, the good life. You know, I've never tried being um, doing anything different. So there's a risk only that you're going to do something that you've never experienced before and it might actually turn out really good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, figured, I can't really lose. I mean, I can only try and then, you know what, if I don't really want to keep trying I can still go back to my crap because I know that well my body knows it well the memories are all there I'm good to go on that path but I didn't know what it was like to try and heal and transform and and develop these new beliefs and I figured it was worth it because you know worst case scenario I do something different I feel something different I actually become something different and that to me was a risk worth taking Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm going to wrap it up here for part one of this episode and we'll be back next week with part two. Bye for now. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.